reading this evening, uh, we have two texts. First is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It's page 165 in the Church Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 15. Verses uh, 5 and 6 here are going to be the, the primary focus of the sermon this evening. But we'll read the whole bit here for context. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 1 through 15. Loved ones, this is the very word of God. Let's give it our full attention. Now this is the commandment. These are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, when you've eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you, for the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. I think I misspoke earlier when I said it was verses 5 and 6. It's 4 and 5 that will be the focus there. Verses 4 and 5 that will be the focus of our sermon text. And here's our New Testament reading, John 17, verses 1 through 5. It's page 958 in the Church Bible. John 17, 1 through 5. Um, we just saw in Deuteronomy, the Lord tells his people, I'm the Lord, I'm the only one, I'm the true God, there is no other. And here in John 17, Jesus confesses that same truth. But he also says that he shares that glory with the Father. He himself is God. He's the full revelation of all that God is. So John 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you've given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
I have glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask him to bless it now to us. Lord, please, what we don't know, please please teach us. What we don't have, please grant us. What we don't uh, understand, please make clear to us. Please conform us now by your Spirit to the image of your Son, by your word, that we might be pleasing to you. As we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So we're continuing on here in this series using the Westminster Shorter Catechism as our roadmap uh, to, to guide us through some scripture texts together. And, and the point is that it, it helps us hit on the key doctrines to make sure that we get a picture and a, and a grasp on the whole teaching of scripture. Uh, that's, that's the goal here. We've worked through our chief end. We've worked through the foundational aspects of why we believe what we believe. We've looked at briefly last time who God is uh, in, in, in himself. And now we turn to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question and answer five, which asks, uh, are there more gods than one? The answer, there is but one only, the living and true God. For most of human history, if you had uh, neighbors, you went up to your neighbors and you said, there's only one true God, uh, they would have looked at you like you had two heads. You're crazy to say something like there's only one true God. Uh, they would have thought you were, you were out of your mind. Um, in our day and age, monotheism, the belief that there's only one God, is much more common. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, uh, it's been around for a while, and, and people have come to accept that that's a common view, that there's only one true God. Um, but for much of the world's history, that was not the case. For example, the Romans in the early church, they did not know what to do with these Christians who, who believed in only one God. They didn't know what to call them. They called them atheists because they didn't believe in their pantheon of gods. They didn't know what to do with them. And our day looks a little different, doesn't it? Right? We have many Christians in the world, many Jews and Muslims who all say well, there's only one God, there's one true God. And so this is a, common, a more common thing that, that you'll hear. There's only one true God. But loved ones, there's still something that is radical about the idea that there's one true God in our culture. And that is not so much believing that there's one true God, but living like you only worship, you only follow, you only trust one God. This is where the rubber hits the, hit the road for the early church, too, right? The Romans didn't really care what you believed, so long as you were a good citizen, so long as you didn't start telling them their sexual ethics were all messed up and start criticizing them for their infanticide, uh, so long as you followed the social norms and, and upheld those things, they didn't really care if you believed uh, what, whatever you liked. It was when the early Christians uh, had lives shaped by this belief in one God, worshiping one God. That's when they got worried and, uh, about, about their monotheism. And it's that way, too, in our day. Our culture doesn't really care, I think, what we believe. They care much more about how that belief impacts our lives. 
as long as our uh, lifestyle doesn't change, as long as our lifestyle doesn't challenge the culture's many gods. They don't care if we hold fast to one God or not. But no, in this regard, being someone who believes in one true God and living like you believe in one true God is a radical thing and a countercultural thing. But loved ones, this is what we're called to, this catechism and the truth that it tells us from Scripture isn't just a head thing. It is so practical. It is so eminently practical for us. We might look at this question and and see it as more of an abstract concept of doctrine that we trust in only one God. But the truth is, it matters immensely to how we live. So two, two things, just two questions to organize our thinking as we work through this idea and as we work through Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5 together. Two questions to organize our thoughts. What do you confess about God? Whom do you love? What do you confess? Whom do you love? First of all, what do you confess? What do you believe about God? Well, we confess. It's right there. It's in our confession. There's one true God. Uh, we believe God is one, that he's singular, not multiple, not, not many gods together. He is one God. This is the uncontested teaching of Scripture and the uncontested teaching of the Christian church through all its history. There's one God. One of the classic texts is this text we read, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's sort of the Apostles' Creed of the Old Testament people. That is, that is, that is, their, that is their doctrine 101. The baseline thing, the, the fundamental part of their covenant teaching uh, is there's one God. One God. Uh, this is called the Shema. Uh, just means, it's the Hebrew word for hear. Uh, it's the first word there in that verse. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Uh, this is what the Lord has to say. And they would take this and they'd put it on their doorpost that as they walked into their house, uh, they would have this right there saying, we are the people who, who live by this truth every day. There is one God. That's their central confession of faith. What does it mean? Well, it means, as I said, God is singular. He's not many gods. He's one God. It means that he's the only true God. If God is one, there can be no other gods apart from him. If, if the Scripture describes God as the eternal creator, uh, the infinite one, the unchanging one, who made everything that there is. And so there's only two categories. There's the creator... There's everything he created. There's the creature and the creator, and, and, and there's no third option. If God is who he says he is in his word, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable creator of everything, there can be no other God besides him. The scriptures do uh, reference other gods, we see this, but only as non-existent idols, stand-ins, substitutes, fakes, Counterfeits. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Clear teaching of Scripture. 
Again, as we, as we started by saying, I can't stress enough how radical an idea this was for Israel. There was no other culture at the time that believed in, in one God. This was a radical thing for them to say. The other nations had endless pantheons of gods. They had gods of war, a moon god, a sun god, a god of fertility, etc., etc., etc. Local gods, foreign gods. Uh, take your pick. Um, they, they, had, uh, they had no problem adding one, adding a dozen, swapping one for another. Um, but the one accept, unacceptable thing in the ancient cultures was that Israel had one god, and they claimed their god was the god of the whole creation, and everyone else's gods are fake. And we see this continue. The biblical religion, Christianity, monotheism, Christian monotheism, stands over and against all other religions and all other systems of thought. Every other one. It's obvious how it stands out against um, polytheism, this, this belief that there are many gods. Um, it's obvious, I think, how it stands out against things like pantheism, the belief that everything is God, everything is divine, which completely erases any distinction between the creator and the creature. Um, I think it's clear that this stands over against atheism. Um, we're saying there is one true God. We cannot say there's not because God himself has revealed himself to us. It stands over against agnosticism, the belief that we can't really know. And God reveals himself. The whole creation shouts the existence of God. We cannot deny it. What about others, though? Right? We have Islam, Judaism. They confess one true God. What do, what do we do with those things? Could they make Deuteronomy 6.4 a confession of their faith, too? Well, in the case of, of Islam, yes, they believe in one true God, but the text here in Deuteronomy 6.4 identifies the one true God specifically as the Lord. That's Yahweh, covenant God, the name that God gives his people uh, as the covenant-keeping God. And that is, that is radically different from Islam's conception of God. Islam sees God as Allah. He is ultimate, uh, and he is utterly arbitrary. He can do whatever he pleases. Any day it could be different from the previous one. He, his will is ultimate, that's not at all the God of Scripture. The Lord Yahweh, the covenant God who comes, and He makes a promise and He keeps it at great cost to Himself, no matter what. That's who the Lord is. He is the one true God. Allah is not. Allah does not exist. There's also, of course, though, Judaism. What about Judaism? Can they look at Deuteronomy 6.4 and say, that's our confession of faith? Well, think about what we read earlier in the Gospel of John. Jesus there says uh, he's, he's confessing the one true God, but he's also saying that he himself shared in that glory of God before the world existed. Creator, not creature. And we read in John fourteen seven, Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Jesus is telling his disciples, if you know me, you know God. If you don't know me, you don't know God. You don't know Yahweh, this covenant Lord, apart from Jesus Christ, now that he's revealed himself to us in him. So here is, here is what we're saying so far, loved ones, just to sum things up here. There's only one true God. He's the infinite, holy creator and king. 
And he's the covenant Lord Yahweh who makes a promise and keeps it. And this is all revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So now the important question, the all-important question is, so what? What does it mean for us that there is only one true God and it's Yahweh, the Lord, revealed to us in Jesus? And that brings us to the second question that's guiding our thinking here, and that is, whom do you love? And we turn now to the second verse here. This is really looking at verse 5. So we saw what we confess. We confess one true God. It's the Lord, Yahweh. In verse 4. Now verse 5. Whom do you love? This covenant God, Yahweh, doesn't just want to be appeased like the God, like other false gods. He doesn't just want acknowledgement or general respect. He wants love. He wants worship and adoration and devotion. He wants everything you are committed to Him. Deuteronomy 6.15 tells us, The Lord your God is a jealous God among you. The Lord is jealous for His people. He's not like these false gods. That's, that's what I think is part of what's attractive about idolatry, is that those idols don't demand very much. It seems like they don't demand very much. Of course, in the end, they cost you everything. But from up front, they don't seem to demand a full life of devotion. The Lord does. But here's the, here's the logic of the text. It's, it's saying in verse 4, because He's the only God, because He's the covenant Lord, therefore, verse 5, you owe Him your love, you owe Him everything. First, because He's God, He's the infinite one. No one else is worthy of a life of love and devotion like that. Because of who he is, we owe him everything. Our creator, we owe him everything. And also, second, because he's the Lord. Because he shows us this wonderful faithfulness. Because he's the one who saves us. We owe him our love and devotion for that. And he says that we are to love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. The command here first is to love God. Why? Why love God doesn't just want our minds or our outward actions or our words. He wants our core being. He wants our affection and our love. Verse 15, again, right, says He's a jealous God. He's jealous for our love. So He calls us to love Him. But what does this love do? Loving God has become, I think, in many circles, a, a trite thing. It's, it's become a, a mushy kind of thing in so many circles. Um, that's not the picture we get here at all. We're called to love the Lord, but the context of Deuteronomy here in chapter 6 that we read flushes out for us what this looks like. You see in verse 2, God says, fear, we must fear the Lord. So that's an aspect of loving Him, fearing Him. This is a love, yes, it's full of adoration and devotion, but also it's shot through with a trembling and a reverence and an awe at who He is. I think of the Pevensey children and the line, the witch in the wardrobe, as, as they're there meeting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they first hear about Aslan, the lion. And, and they find out Aslan's a lion, and they're scared. And uh, uh, one of them asks, is he, is he safe? Is he a tame lion? And the beavers, of course, wisely say, he's not safe, but he is good. And so that, that, that's true of our Lord. Our love for Him needs to be shot through with reverence and awe and fear and trembling. 
fear, reverence, respect. That's part of this love. Another aspect we see of this love, verses 3 and verse 4, both command us to hear Him. That's what this love for Yahweh does. It listens. It's a love that, that, that is uh, humble and ready to hear what He has to say. It's a listening love. We also see in the text, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, really th- woven throughout the whole thing here is that this love is a love that shows itself in obedience. And if there's no obedience, there's clearly no love. Jesus puts this so clearly in John fourteen fifteen. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love the Lord, you must obey him. We cannot say we love him and walk in disobedience to him. So that's the picture of this love that we're called to. Reverent, listening, obedient, adoring. God calls us to love him in this way. And he says we're to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. First, with all your, with all your heart, he says. The heart in the Bible is the command center of, of a human being. It's the thing that drives you and sort of the engine that, that runs the car, if you will. Uh, love him with all your heart. It includes your mind in Scripture. It's not just an emotional thing in Scripture. The heart includes the mind. We're to love him with our thinking. Uh, it also includes our wills, our decision-making. We're to love him in that. We're to love him with our uh, affections and emotions. The whole of the inner man, our whole being, is to be consumed with love for God. God doesn't just want an outward obedience. He wants our hearts. He looks on the heart, First Samuel 16, 7 tells us. So love Him with all your heart, the text says. Love Him with all your soul, with all your life. This is similar, very similar to the idea of the heart here. Love God with, with what makes you a person. Love Him with the essence of who you are. Then we get strength. Love Him with all your strength. God doesn't just want uh, um, uh, uh, this to be a spiritual thing. He wants it to be worked out in energetic obedience. He wants our bodies as well. Our our obedience worked out in, in faithful living before Him. So the picture that we get is that the Lord wants everything we are. He wants us to love Him with absolutely everything we are and everything that we have with our whole life. He wants your thinking, your affections, your feelings, your decisions, what you say, what you do. He wants you to love Him with all of it. We struggle uh, with this, don't we? Um, we, uh, we confess with our mouths that there's one true God. But if this is what it means, our lives fall far short of our confession. Uh, we are so attracted to so many idols. Our hearts are, Calvin famously said, our hearts are idol factories. They crank them out um, 24-7, it seems. We worship comfort and ease and pleasure and having control or being, uh, having prominence or, or having material possessions. Not one of us is free from the magnetic pull of idolatry. Sin has hardwired us. It's, it's, it's taken our hearts, which are designed for worship, and, and hardwired them instead to worship other things, creatures instead of creator. 
So what are we to do, loved ones? How do we, how do, we do battle with these other idols, try to, try to get them out of our hearts so that we have Christ alone on the throne of our hearts? Well, first thing I'd say is remember our confession. Well, we just confessed our faith uh, with the words there of, um, of the Shorter Catechism or the words of Deuteronomy 6.4. There is one true God. It's Yahweh, the Lord. So everything else, all the other idols, they cannot compete with him. They're only copies. They're only imitations and counterfeits. Um, remember who he is. He's the one true God. Everything else is a fake that we worship as God. Only he's the true God. Second thing is that uh, we need to remember that he's the only one who can satisfy our hearts. Yes, he demands all that we are, but he promises to give us all that he is, and he promises to satisfy us in himself. Jeremiah 2.13 puts this so well, this picture of idolatry, and uh, paints it for us so well. It's in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, My people have committed two evils, They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's how God pictures idol worship to the Israelites. He's saying, you're like people who are, who are there at a fountain of living water, a spring of water coming up out of the ground. It's fresh, and it's clean, and it's good. It's life-giving. It satisfies your thirst. But you're turning away from that, and you're going, and you're digging out a well that can't hold any water. And you're looking for that broken cistern, that empty, muddy cistern, to satisfy your thirst. And you've rejected the fountain of living waters in doing that. This is what we do in our idolatry. We exchange the fountain of living waters for a broken cistern that can't hold water. So we need to remember that, that God is the one who satisfies our hearts and nothing else can. So the command of the text, the, the so what, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all you are. Now this is, um, this is the fundamental command of covenant, isn't it? This is, this is the basic command, the basic requirement of the covenant. But the truth is, as we stand here, you know, under God's word, we find that we do not measure up at all. Um, we, we, this, is, uh, this is sort of covenant-keeping 101. The, the, the first step in being part of God's covenant is to love him with this kind of loyalty. And we haven't even cleared that first step, have we? We failed it from the very beginning. I'm reminded of the rich young man in Luke 18. Jesus there is speaking with this rich young man and the man is telling him that he's kept all the commandments and Jesus asks him which ones and he, he lists out the ones he's kept and he, he picks the second part of the law, the second part of the Ten Commandments which deal about um, um, our, how we love our neighbor. The man says he hasn't done any of these sinful things and, but he doesn't feel like he's in the kingdom of heaven and Jesus says, well, if you want to be in the kingdom... Sell all you have to the poor and follow me. Jesus isn't giving him instructions for works righteousness there to get into the kingdom by his own righteousness, but he's saying, how about the other table of the law? How do you stand in regards to that? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That's the first and greatest commandment Jesus tells us elsewhere. And this rich young man 
can't do it. He goes away. Sad, but hanging on to his idols. He's worshiping something else instead of the Lord. And loved ones, this is a this is this is a picture for us of who we are in ourselves. Uh, that we can't keep the most basic commandment of all in coming to the Lord. The question is then, how can God keep his covenant with us when we haven't met the most basic threshold for obedience? And that's, that's where I want to uh, land tonight as we bring things to a close, is with, with looking at our Lord Jesus Christ. Because yes, we are called to, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we do not. And so even as we, we look to, to think about how we can grow in our obedience to His law, we also have to see how we can be in a relationship with the Lord at all. How this covenant Lord can be ours at all and bless us at all if we are so constantly faithless to Him. And it's, it's found, our hope is found in Christ because He never failed. He, he perfectly loved God. Every single moment of his life with all that he was never failed once in it. All his heart, soul, mind, and strength, perfect obedience, perfect devotion to his Father. He cleared that threshold. He, 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 uh, he leapt over it in keeping God's covenant. And that's what our hope is as we seek to follow him faithfully. Our hope isn't in our success and conquering our idols and holding fast to Christ. We hope we do that more and more, but our hope is Jesus did it. And I'm going to trust in His righteousness for me. So loved ones, uh, keep your eyes on Him. Keep your eyes on Him and uh, trust in His righteousness for you once again and seek His Spirit to help you grow in new obedience. Let's pray together. Lord, it is true that you are one. There is none beside you. You alone are God. And so we ought to. We owe you everything. It's true that you are the Lord who has loved us and promised to be our God forever. And So we owe you our love and devotion. We pray you forgive us for how often we fail. Forgive us for the idols of our hearts. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ the perfectly righteous one for our sakes. And Father, by your Spirit, equip us to follow you with more devoted and pure hearts, to cast down idols from our hearts and and seek to worship and serve, to fear, obey, listen, and trust you alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.